Welcome to the Beastified Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. This is a show dedicated to inspiring you to treat your body and mind the way it should be treated. Each week we delve into all things health with some of the brightest and most forward thinking out of the box minds in health, consciousness, mindset and spirituality. Deep and often intense, these conversations are released every Wednesday and are designed to inspire, educate, motivate and encourage you to discover, uncover and unlock and unleash your potential. In this episode of the Beastified Podcast, we are joined by Ben Greenfield. Ben is just one of those people who is always talking about new ways we can optimise our health and improve our human habits. This episode is packed full of great info and packed full of great actionable info. We cover many areas from optimising your home habit to parenting tips to his top strategies to improve your health in everyday life. I was going to say sit back and enjoy this episode, but you might want to stand for this one. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. Yeah, ben, how was your hunting trip? Oh, it was good. It was good. That was a while ago. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was good, though. It's a good time. Oh, great. So, uh, Ben, we'd just like to say it's uh, great to have you on the Beastified podcast today. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Oh, certainly, Ben. So, Ben, we were both really thinking about how we could really kickstart this podcast off. And we both came to the conclusion that we really need a big question. So, Ben, I've been coming to the thinking that all great ideas great successes and great choices generally come from people who really value their body and mind. So Ben, someone like yourself who physically and mentally trains your body, what do you think the impact of this is in relation to your DNA or inner consciousness to make better choices later on in life? Oh, geez, that's a really deep question to start things off with. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I've never really thought about that too much. I mean, because for me, movement and taking care of your body is just natural. It's something that we should want to do when we get out of bed in the morning. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, for me, I, I can't necessarily say that it allows me to achieve deeper levels of consciousness. Right? Like I, I know a lot of people who are who are, you know, fat and unhealthy, and they seem to still be pretty dialed in from a spiritual standpoint, or they have really good relationships and love in their life, and so mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're very uh, connected to uh, what it means to be a human. And even when we look at a lot of these areas that are like blue zones spread around the world, exercise is not necessarily something that stands out as a defining characteristic of longevity. Instead, it's relationships, it's love, it's low-level physical activity during the day, but not necessarily exercise sessions. It is uh, time spent in nature, it's consumption of wild foods found in, in you know, unpackaged formats, you know, it's, it's exposure to good air, um, you know, lack of pollution, lack of electrical pollution, good water. So a lot of these things, you know, they they stand in stark contrast to our idea that you just go and beat yourself up with, you know, whatever, a CrossFit wad or, you know, a hammer fest on the bike ride at the end of the day of sitting on your butt staring at a computer. So ultimately, though, when it comes to, like, you know, consciousness and happiness and whatever, I, I don't necessarily think that 
that exercise is way high up there on the important spectrum. I would say that living naturally is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that like training your body and mind is like definitely like life in my opinion. I think if you don't like push yourself and stay in the comfort zone, you're going to get nowhere in my opinion. Yeah, if you don't step outside the comfort zone. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. some debate about that, right? Like in the biohacking community, there's a mm-hmm. lot of people that say if something is hard, then you're doing it the wrong way, right? So like if meditation mm-hmm. is difficult for you, then maybe you're not using the right electrical device hooked up to your head to, you know, fast forward mm-hmm. your meditation process. You know, not that I not that I think that you can't get good results with some of these devices out there that are you know, that allow you to say like hack exercise by, you know, whatever, standing on a vibration mm-hmm. platform attached to electrical muscle stimulation, wearing a training mask inside a sauna, right? Like it's not like some of that stuff doesn't actually work, but ultimately I've only really ever seen good results come from it when you're still having to go outside your comfort zone, right? So it's like um, if you look at for for example, like increasing your IQ or your cognitive performance, there are apps out there, right? Like Lumosity or Brainscape that are almost like fun games that are supposed to make you smarter. But I don't think very hard when I'm playing those. You're just like pressing arrows and kind of like tracking things on a screen versus an app like uh, the, the N back training app, which just makes your head spin as soon as you start playing it or like learning a new musical instrument. Like mm-hmm. those are... are are uncomfortable activities that do very efficiently. I mean, you can feel your brain just like buzzing when you're using these type of things, but it's uncomfortable. However, it's in a good way. And I do agree that you do have to go outside your comfort zone to get results uh, for your for your brain, for your body, etc. However, there is a there's there's a lot of talk, like especially in the biohacking community, that you don't have to. And I I disagree with that. I, I kind of more agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Ben, you mentioned a bit before there about hacks. I think something often as well when life hacks are mentioned, you're always like a name that comes up. So Ben, could you delve a bit into what like a like what a life hack is or actually biohack actually means? Or bio, I mean, like a hack. That's just a computer term, right? It's like figuring out a way to work the system, typically in a manner that's slightly different than what it was intended for. Figuring out a way to make it go faster or mm-hmm. or you know work around a, a specific area that might be like a um, a flow stopper or something that might cause a bottleneck and instead speed up your results. So an example of that from like, say a, uh, a life hacking standpoint would be, for example, while I am talking to you guys right now, I am walking on my treadmill, right? So I'll probably walk like four to six miles today, just getting work done and, and talking to my clients on the phone and doing podcasts tests and things like that. And that, you know, some people would consider that a life hack. It probably is because it, it means that I am, you know, kind of keeping myself a little bit more healthy during the day and I'm spending time on my feet and I'm, I'm kind of doing two things at once. And so that might be considered a, a life hack, you know, for some people, you know, for me this morning, I had all the nutrients I'd ever need for the entire day in one smoothie that I ate out of a giant mug at the beginning of the day. And something like that might also be considered a, a nutrition hack, right? Because it's faster than me eating like pounds and pounds of vegetables and making a giant salad. Um, you know, or, or a biohack. I mean, biohacks can, I mean, there's some freaky stuff out there. Some people are getting like night vision implanted in their eyes or like bionic limbs oh. or, you know, chips embedded that, that read uh, bloodline 
lactate and glucose and stuff like that. So there's, you know, you can you can definitely um, take this thing to the limit when it comes to hacking. But the the term itself, I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason or rules about like what a life hack is or what a biohack is. You know, essentially, I would just consider it any time that you're kind of being smart in a way that allows you to get faster results. Yeah, Ben. What what are some of the hacks you do? I know you mentioned there about walking on a treadmill. That's quite a good way to like get your um, a little bit of momentum and then work work as well. So it's quite a good way, a little hack. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah, so like um, you know, for example, this morning it's gray out. It's been raining for like two days. There's no sun. So this morning, I when I woke up, I put in these these little uh, light buds. This one's called the human charger i have a, an article about this on the ben greenfield fitness website and it shines a bright light into your ears it stimulates the photoreceptors in your ears and it gives you the same type of surge in cortisol and adrenaline and wakefulness that being in the sunlight would and then once i had those in my ears i went down and i did a workout in uh, an infrared sauna so i was using infrared to induce my body to sweat much faster than it would if I were exercising in normal temperatures. And at the same time as I was doing all of that, so I've got like the light in my ears, I'm in the sauna. I was actually, you know, despite me joking about it a little bit ago, I was wearing one of these training masks, which means that I was restricting airflow both in and out, training my lungs to work harder than they would normally work if I was not restricting airflow. So I'm training my diaphragm, my inspiratory and expiratory muscles, and then all finish something like that up with a little bit of caffeine to enhance fat cell utilization and then a plunge into the cold pool outside my house. So that'll jumpstart my nitric oxide production for the day. It'll get a bunch of blood flowing. It'll bring my core temp back down after the sauna workout. And then I'll get out from that and I'll force my body rather than going and taking a warm shower, I'll force my body to warm itself back up just naturally, right, without me taking a warm shower. I'll just air dry, basically. And what that does is it causes conversion of white fat, storage fat, into brown fat, metabolically active fat, because that brown fat is the fat that uses calories to generate mm -hmm. heat. So I'm training my body how to beat its own heater. And so once I finish all of that, you know, by the, by the time I've, I've started my morning, you know, I've gotten heat therapy, I've gotten cold therapy, I've trained my inspiratory and expiratory muscles, I've gotten blue light therapy in the ears, um, you know, and, and that's just a, that's, that's an average morning for me in terms of just like doing a, a lot of little, little things to kind of make the body better uh, in, a, in a kind of fun way, and you know, I, I enjoy stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think uh, cold thermogenesis is also like greatly, great, really great to talk about as well because it's like something that I've been implementing a lot is like contrast showers. And I've been doing this for about a year now, and to my knowledge, it's not only a great way to like bring you back to the present, but it's a powerful like catalyst for like burning fat. And uh, it's actually only it's been clinically proven to impact your hormone function, and I think it's accelerated recovery as well and anti-aging effects. But yeah. I think it's something like a lot of people should be interested in. Yeah, there's a guy named Ray Cronice. He used to be a NASA materials engineer, and now he does a lot of of work in the cold thermogenesis sector, particularly cold thermogenesis for managing metabolic issues and weight loss and you know one of his go-to's at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day you take a five minute shower of 20 yeah. seconds of cold with 10 seconds of hot so it's 10 times through 
right? Cold to hot, cold to hot, cold to hot. And when you do that, you get a big release of nitric oxide and nitric oxide synthase. You get a lot of blood flow. You get a, a lot of lymph flow. You get a little bit of an increase in metabolism for a few hours after a shower like that. So yeah, um, that it's it's. Uh, let's put it this way. There's a book out there by a guy named Nassim Tlaib. It's called Anti-Fragile. And one of the things that it gets into in that book is about how we've grown accustomed to too much to the comforts of daily life. And that includes things like air conditioning and heat, right? So like right now, even as I'm walking in my office here at my house, it's about 59 degrees in the office. And for some, some people, they would just be like, oh, go turn on the heat. It's too cold. But instead, I'm, I'm walking on a treadmill. I'm wearing a hoodie. You know, I, I figured out a way to, to keep my body warm and you know it's still slightly cool but it's okay for the body to be slightly uncomfortable right it's okay to be slightly hungry it's okay for the lungs or the muscles to be burning a little bit during a workout it's okay for your brain to be a little bit confused or for you to feel kind of like uncomfortable mentally when you're playing a game or learning a musical instrument like we were talking about so yeah absolutely it just returns to that whole concept of being uncomfortable mm-hmm. Then I love the idea of like it's sort of being like in a hunter gatherer mode throughout the day. I know you're not seeing like an intense workout, but it's more like from like an ancestral standpoint. Yeah, I mean, like you know, right now I'm walking. I've got a pull-up bar back behind me, and I can go hang from that like a monkey and decompress the body, open up the shoulders, work the grip a little bit. I've always got a kettlebell sitting. Well, I've got a kettlebell in the garage, a kettlebell in my office, and a kettlebell in the sauna. So at any point, I can just go lift about seventy to eighty pounds a few times you know 10 times lift the weight up and off the ground and so if you do that kind of stuff all day long I mean by the time you get to the end of the day exercise is really only something that you need to do like an exercise session a proper structured exercise session is something that's optional you only need to do that if you're preparing for say like a an obstacle race or a triathlon or a marathon or a bicycling race or something where you're going to be you know racing and you need more sports specific fitness but ultimately yeah. You know, as far as as weight loss or just general health, you really don't have to to exercise in a traditional sense of the word. If you instead, you know, to use this word again, hack your environment to allow you to be physically active all day long. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned before as well about the pull-up bar. It's something that I've been incorporating a lot as well throughout the day. And so obviously, like having a pull-up bar in my doorway, and like every time I pass under it, I'll like hang or I'll swing, or I'll even do like five pull-ups as well. And I've found that's a brilliant tool for me. Yeah, that's what I do. It was five pull-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think as well, a human body hasn't been just developed to sit at a desk for eight hours and lift heavy weights for an hour and then repeat every day. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. They, you know, they, they do have studies that show that it doesn't matter uh, how much you exercise at the beginning or the end of the day uh, when it comes to metabolic health. If you're still sitting for eight hours a day, or more specifically, more than two hours at any given time, you actually have decreased metabolic health or increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, etc. Um, so, yeah, it really is interesting that that you you can't combat sitting with with an exercise session at the beginning or at the end of the day. So, um, the other thing is there's this biomechanist named Katie Bowman, and she talks a little bit about uh, blood flow and how long periods of time with the joint at a specific angle can actually cause what, what amounts to almost like kinks in the blood vessels. She refers to it as, as turbulent flow. And when, when 
blood flow hits certain sections where there's areas of turbulence or impedance, you can actually increase your risk of a heart attack, of plaque formation, et cetera. It's just this, this concept of, of, of always allowing blood to be flowing during the day, but not just flowing, but flowing unimpeded without a certain joint being at a specific angle for a very long, long period of time that would cause things to become, you know, to use the, the highly technical and scientific term, uh, kinked. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, you know, if you look at it from a biomechanical standpoint, it makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. Then in the, in the last few years, I've like noticed this conscious shift in like people's thinking, like eating and people's movement patterns. And they're sort of like jumping back to like a more ancestral standpoint. Ben, do you think that evolution's purpose is to go back to like an ancestral standpoint in terms of health and life? No, because I, I, I certainly don't think that if ancient man could have figured out a way to get from whatever, from Florida to London in nine hours on an airplane, you know, hurtling 40,000 feet above Earth's uh, surface in a metal tube, that they, that they wouldn't have done so. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's pretty damn convenient, if you ask me. Or, you know, the ability to send an email to my grandma 3,000 miles away, right? Like, I don't think that we have to eschew technology. I just think that some of the things that we've grown to accept as normal in terms of our utilization of said technology, Technology, such as um, you know the airplane analogy. Sure, you could fly in the airplane, but nobody said that you have to drink alcohol and caffeine the whole time, or stay seated the whole time, or you know you could check your email, but nobody said that you have to necessarily be using a Wi-Fi router or you know sitting hunched over the computer, right? So you know it all comes down to healthy use of modern technology and a marriage of ancestral living with modern technology. You know, same thing with like encapsulation, right? Like if uh, um, if ancient man would have been able to take the components of a root that's known to be medicinal to extract that, to get it into a very, very small nanoparticle form, get it into a capsule and take it that way, again, they probably would have done so because that's more convenient than eating eight pounds of root. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's all about just stepping back and looking at what is what is a healthy use of technology versus what might cause you to become too, too exposed to things like electrical pollution or long periods of time spent sitting or radiation, et cetera. Yeah, you're exactly right there, Ben. Technology has like brought us together, but people have started to take it for granted. And so it's like right now we're speaking through Skype and a million years, sorry, a million, a thousand years ago, this would be like unheard of. You'd be thrown away and locked away and that's the end of you. Oh, dude, I mean, like, 20 years ago, right? Like, I I tried, my parents tried to use, like, online education for me in high school, and, like, you'd spend, like, two hours before class just trying to freaking get to the point where you could connect to the professor's classroom. Like, you just couldn't do it. So, yeah, I mean, even the past couple of decades, absolutely. Mm. Ben, in terms of people being more in touch with their food, uh, you are certainly somebody who leads by example and have have taken things into your own hands. heard you mention before you become more self-efficient in terms of growing your own food mm-hmm yeah absolutely so I mean there's there's no reason that you know people who even live in urban areas cannot use things like vertical planters like if you go to Amazon for example you can buy hydroponic planters you can buy vertical planters you can grow all your own food literally in the space of a of a, a patio like a little porch back behind your house if you've got some sunlight and a little bit of fresh air so you know, I, I personally have a couple of goats. I've got a handful of chickens. I've got, you know, a good couple of 
acres of raised garden beds, and I grow a lot more food than that. But you don't have to like live on a farm to to grow your own food. You'd be surprised at the small spaces that you can get everything from, like chicken coops with a couple of chickens to uh, to to plants that you grow yourself. To like when we lived in the city, we don't need more. But when we lived in the city a couple of years ago, we got rid of our whole yard, right? Like our beautiful American grassy front yard and backyard and just replace it all with stuff we could eat because mm. that's more important to us from a sustainability standpoint. I'd rather do that than, you know, order freaking bananas and coconut milk on a yeah. jet from South America. So mm. yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big, big fan of figuring out ways to when possible grow your own food. It also gives you just a deeper connection with cooking meal preparation. Um, you know, there's something therapeutic, therapeutic as well about getting your hands dirty and you know having to plant a seed and go harvest it and and water the plants and pay attention to how they're doing etc it's very similar to having like a pet or a child something that's dependent on you gives you this sense of responsibility that actually kind of helps to keep you feeling a little bit more alive during the day mm-hmm. yeah yeah like ben with the food we grow naturally through our own hands is not just more nutritious but it also gives us like the satisfaction of our own self-worth really mm-hmm. like sort of saying yeah i planted this i grew that these come yeah. from my own yeah. hand i yeah. nourish this food now it's nourishing nourishing me yeah absolutely yeah ben ben that was a great insight in how like we should be more touch about food i think ben in the fitness industry when people talk about health people are just like food 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 and exercise exercise and I think there's a lot more than just food and exercise, and like people never consider the elements like water, earth, and light. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, Ben, what's your views on sort of things people need to be thinking about other than just food and exercise? Yeah, so air, uh, the air that you're breathing is important. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of tips that I have for folks are if you're not filtering mm-hmm. the air that's in your environment, using, for example, you know, what I have in my home is what's called a HEPA air filter. I have that installed in the central air duct in my home. And that has a negative ion generator in it. So it's a HEPA air filter. So it's filtering out molds and, and fungus and airborne pollutants, etc. But then the negative ion generator, negative ions are things that get churned out by, for example, waterfalls crashing into rocks or ocean waves coming into the beach. We find them quite a bit in nature, but in stale indoor environments, there's a high amount of positive ions, which gets, those get turned out by like computers and dishwashers, anything electronic. And your cells operate at a millivolt potential of around 70 to 80 millivolts. When you dump a bunch of positive ions into the environment, that millivolt potential drops, right? So your cellular activity decreases, metabolism decreases, your body becomes less efficient. That's why sometimes you feel crappy when you sit around indoor all days, surrounded by, mm-hmm. say, like computers and Wi-Fi routers and appliances and negative ions that are generated by, for example, air filters can help to combat a lot of this. So um, that's one thing is is filtering out the air that you're breathing, being aware of things like mold and fungus and freshness and and just ensuring that no matter where you're at, you're not breathing in old, stale air, whether that's in a gym or whether it's in your home or whether it's in your office. Now, a big fan of, of something like a HEPA air filter for that. Uh, for water, same thing. A lot of water has everything from prescription drugs in it. If you live in a municipal area to chlorine to fluoride to a host of other issues or uh, it doesn't have enough minerals in it. So if you live in an area that has just a basic municipal water supply, 
my recommendation is to filter the water really, really well. You can use like a reverse osmosis water filter, which is going to filter out just about everything. And then you want to do two things if you do that. Number one, you want to add minerals back to the water. And some reverse osmosis filters come with what are called remineralizers. Uh, if you get one that doesn't have a remineralizer, you can just use supplements like trace liquid mineral drops or powders or waters that have high amounts of minerals in them. And when I'm traveling, what I do is I just get good glass bottled water like Pellegrino or Perrier or Geraldstein or, or like a good mineral rich water. It's expensive, but I mean, it's, it's much, much better than drinking out of, of nasty plastic water that's a lot of times bottled from local municipal taps. Yeah. Now, the other thing after you've added minerals back to the water, um, the other thing you want to do is make sure that your water is alive, vibrant, structured. There's a lot of really good research coming out of the University of Washington right now that shows that water that is vibrating at a frequency very similar to what it'd be vibrating at if it were, say, passing through an underground spring is absorbed differently by the cells of your body than water that's been sitting in cisterns or pipes or, or not vibrating at those frequencies. And so one of the other things I recommend people do if they're, even if they're filtering their water is to use what's called a structured water filter, which is typically, it can be inline or it can wrap around the pipe in your house. But what it does is the water passes through a series of glass beads prior to winding up in your shower or your bath or your drinking water, and it, and it restructures the water, causes it to vibrate again at that specific uh, frequency. So air and water are important. Light would be a, another one to take into consideration. You know, for example, in my office right now, uh, all the bulbs are designed to simulate sunlight. So the bulbs that are, that are in my office, for example, are made by a company called Lighting Science, and the, the style of the bulb is called Awake and Alert. So it's got more blue light similar to what you get from sunlight in this particular bulb. Um, you know, I told you about like the, the lights that I was using in my ears to regulate my circadian rhythm because it's dark and rainy outside right now. And that's something else that I'll use, for example, when I'm traveling. But upstairs in the bedroom, is the, it's the complete opposite. So there are, none of the lights in the bedroom have any light from the blue light wave spectrum, which can shut down melatonin production and increase wakefulness, but you don't want that in the bedroom. So the bedroom has you know, uh, blackout curtains. I have a, you know, wraparound sleep mask. The light bulbs themselves are called sleepy time bulbs, so they don't have any blue light wave spectrum. They're mostly uh, red light, and, and uh, they, they don't look like sunlight at all. They're not harsh bulbs. They're very, very much more, more dim, kind of. And then my home itself, you know, always the, when it is daytime, mm -hmm. the shades are open, the curtains are open. You know, I get near windows as much as possible just to allow my body to bathe in as much natural light as it can. Um, the other thing that's really important, of course, when you can, is to get out into the sunlight, uh, which, you know, for example, again, like here, that's not possible right now, which is why I use all these other lighting methods. But mm -hmm. being aware of light and the effect that it has on the body, along with air, along with water, uh, that's it's really important. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of other elements, too. You know, you've got earth. You've got your microbiome and bacteria. Um, you know that you've got all all sorts of things that that, that we could talk about. But I, I would say that air and water and light are three biggies. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned before about spring water, it's actually something that we've been implementing a lot. And we've been going to our local spring and collecting water, and it tastes amazing. It's just completely different type of quality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Ben, I th- think as well, I think it's some things that people forget about is how to, can they improve the quality of the sleep. So Ben, I was wondering what, what are some things that people could do to improve the quality of the sleep? Yeah, so, um, I mean, basic sleep hygiene is you sleep in a dark room. The temperature should be between about 65 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, ideally. And, and noise should be kept at a minimum, whether that means you use one of these uh, white noise apps. There's one that I really like called Sleepstream that doesn't just create white noise, but it creates what are called binaural beats. So this means that a beat is played in one frequency in one ear and in another frequency in another ear and the beats are designed to lull you into the delta brainwave and the theta brainwave patterns associated with sleep. So I'll put in those with headphones and then put a wraparound sleep mask around that so it's dark and noise is blocked and I've got binaural beats going. And then uh, I'll, I'll keep the room nice and cool, about 65 to 70 degrees. Um, as far as like supplements and, and things along those lines, um, what I've been a big fan of lately when traveling is just a little bit of melatonin. And if you use melatonin and you, what happens is sometimes the melatonin will wear off and you'll wake up at like 2 or 3 a.m. as soon as it wears off. Uh, but if you use like a patch, um, they make melatonin patches that you can buy and put on like your inner thighs or the inside of your arms. That gives you like a slow bleed of melatonin and that, that that wakefulness doesn't happen quite as much. Now, I don't use melatonin when I'm at home because even though there's not a lot of evidence about this, I want to be careful not to shut down my body's own production of melatonin. But at home, um, I take advantage of the fact that you have a, a system in your body called the endocannabinoid system that, if stimulated, can really help with decreasing stress, decreasing anxiety, and helping you to feel relaxed. And if if you stimulate that system in adequate quantities to fall asleep very readily, almost like a like an antidepressant, like Valium or diazepam. So I use this stuff called CBD or cannabidiol, which is the non-psychoactive uh, component of the hemp plant in like a capsule form. And I'll use about 30 to 40 milligrams of that before sleep. And I've experimented over the past decade with tons of different sleep uh, supplements and sleep capsules and sleep lotions, and uh, this, this CBD um, just works amazingly. It's, it's the most bulletproof thing I've found yet when it comes to just making you fall asleep like a baby, whether you're on an airplane or whether you're, uh, you're at home or, you know, taking a nap on a, in a car or wherever. So those are some of the things that, that, that I'll do when it comes to sleep, you know, in addition to just being very, very careful with the amount of light in the room, right? So that there's interesting research that shows that even if there's a very, very small amounts of light, like a little pen light shown on the back of the knee in one study was enough to disrupt circadian rhythm because you have photoreceptors on your skin. And so if I'm sleeping in a hotel or I'm at home, I'll unplug everything, right? Like alarm clocks, the TV, because a lot of times the TV has a little tiny, you know, green circular light on it. Um, I'll just, once the lights are off, I'll walk through the, the hotel room or the bedroom just to make sure anything that's producing even very small amounts of light as unplugged or it's turned off. Um, at home, I have the advantage that I have a kill switch in my bedroom. So all the bedrooms have a kill switch, which means when you walk into the room, you press the kill switch, everything just turns off. So you've got no electricity at night when you're asleep. But mm. you can also just unplug stuff. And then the last, last thing to be aware of is one of the number one health issues that I see in people's homes is they keep their Wi-Fi router on all night long. 
And the Wi-Fi router is one of the biggest sources of electrical pollution in your house. And it, it really is a form of radiation that's not all that healthy for the human body. So whenever I have a chance, I will hardwire my computer via an Ethernet cable into the router and then make sure that the actual radio signal on the router is turned off. Or at night, you can just unplug it altogether. Or if you, if you forget to do that, you can even buy for like 20, 30 bucks what's called a digital outlet timer. So you could set it to say, okay, turn this outlet off at 10 p.m., then turn this outlet back on again at 6 a.m. And you could just plug your Wi-Fi router into that, and so it'll automatically turn off in the evening then turn on again in the morning. Mm -hmm. Ben, I think switching the Wi-Fi at night is a really important one because that's something that I've, I've started implementing a lot, and it was actually because I listened to your podcast as well. But that's been a really, that's been a really big benefit for me, that, switching the Wi-Fi at night. Really. Yeah. Ben, I think as well, like humans are like a direct product of their environment as well. And I think our brains are like are constantly like creating and strengthening like neural associations to places that like we're in and mostly the bedroom. And yeah, the, you mean like with, like if you're working on your computer and stuff in the bedroom, how you're associating yeah. that, that place with work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I mean, it's, you know, part of your environment. Yeah. And I'll admit, like sometimes I will like, you know, watch a funny TV show on Hulu or on YouTube and. And I'm, you know, it's on the weekend, it's night, I'm tired. And so I'll just like put on some, some glasses, right? So they make glasses that will block blue light from getting into your eyes when you're looking at a screen. And I'll just wear those and, you know, watch something to chill at the end of the night. And my wife and I are tired and we'll curl up in bed and watch something. But that's pretty few and far between. Usually I'll keep technology pretty far from the bedroom just because it could be so tempting for it to become yeah. work, right? If you like pop in and check email or, you know. Check and see if you know that blog post that you wrote published okay, and then you just get sucked yeah. in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like sleep is such a powerful topic. Like, like you see in there, Ben, um, it's like you're living in this 24/7 environment, and people believe that if they go to sleep, they might miss something. Yeah, yeah, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Mm, definitely, and like sleep is certainly a component of life, which a lot of people neglect for this, and this is why it's so important to get this over. And like an interesting fact is that. Humans are actually the only mammal that willingly delay sleep. So, Ben, this leads us to the question, do you think sleep is a primordial condition, or do you think it's evolved as we have? I have no clue. I don't care. I just know it feels good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of evidence out there to show that your sleep range is seven to nine hours. You sleep less than seven hours, you can get some metabolic effects that are deleterious. You sleep more than nine hours, same thing can happen. More is not necessarily better. Obviously, there's a huge genetic range. There's actually about 1% of the population that does have a gene that allows your body to repair and recover more quickly while you sleep, and you can get by on fewer numbers of sleep cycles. So a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes long. You go from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four sleep and then back out. Some people can go through just two to three of those. And they are genetically able to handle that and be refreshed, be restored, and be ready for the day. Now, I suspect that there might be a metabolic trade-off, right? Like maybe those people are also people who are more predisposed to, you know, cancer or, or dying early or something like that. But at least they get away with sleeping less. Uh, but for the majority of people, it's about seven to nine hours or closer to four to five of those sleep cycles for each 24-hour cycle that you need to go through. And so um, ultimately, whether that's primordial or evolved with 
does or what I, I don't know. I mean, I, all I know is, is when you look at the research, there is a, a certain amount that it seems that humans need to be sleeping. And when you look at ancestry, it appears that sometimes that wasn't all in one shot. Like we're encouraged to do it now, right? Like go to sleep at night, sleep from 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It appears that uh, in generations prior to ours, that sometimes they'd sleep for four hours, wake up, make love, gather around the campfire, tell stories, et cetera, et cetera, then go back to sleep. And the one thing that is important to bear in mind is that these populations likely were going to bed a little bit earlier than we are going to bed, you know, such as when the sun sets. Anyone who's been camping or hunting can tell you that typically, you know, you, you the sun sets and you might sit around the fire for a little while and you go to bed, you might be in bed by like, you know, asleep, 8.30, 9 p.m. And so if you wake up again at whatever, midnight or one and hang out for a little while and go back to sleep and sleep till let's say 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., you're still getting like nine hours of sleep. So that's one thing to bear in mind. The other thing to bear in mind is that we are exposed to a far greater amount of environmental stressors during the day now. And because of that, it may be likely that we need that longer interrupted sleep cycle in the evening because we're just doing less napping and less relaxing during the day yeah like i always felt like when your sleep is aligned correctly and your circadian rhythm is in a line then your health will be aligned and your sleep quality will reflect the quality of healthy choices you make throughout the day that's what i've always found yeah in many cases right like that snickers bar is so much easier to eat when you've only slept four hours yeah he's very <laughs> then we know that you have like two young boys and they mean everything to you but what are some things that you do with your kids and maybe some things that parents could do to aid a child's full physical potential? Um, yeah, so I, I I would say I'll give you two things. First of all, I work out with my kids. I have a lot of friends who think that's inconvenient, who try to get their workouts over with early in the morning or late at night so they can, whatever, watch TV with their kids. But ultimately, uh, I figure out creative ways to include my kids in my workout. I'll carry them up hills like sandbags. You know, I'll do kettlebell swings with my big kettlebell, and I bought them a little kettlebell that they can do their kettlebell swings with. I'll go and do, you know, boxing class, and my kids will do jiu-jitsu while I'm doing boxing. Um, you know, I'll go out and shoot my bow, and the kids will shoot, or we'll get on the slack line, and we'll take turns on the slack line. But I figured out ways to, to basically just get my workout in and just have my kids tag along, and I'll use them as weights. I mean, I'll even go on hikes where I'll just put a crap ton of weight in a backpack, which makes it hard on me. And so when when we're hiking, you know, it's it's I'm getting a really good workout, and the kids are able to keep up because I'm weighed down with you know like 80 pounds. So you know, yeah. just little things that allow your kids to join in with workouts and let them see you exercising. That's very important. Um, the other thing is that we've never ever had like separate meals for the kids, right? Whatever the adult eats, the kids eat. We have people come over, or we'll go to people's houses, and they'll have like the adult meal, and then the kids will have whatever, macaroni and cheese or their own special meal. Or yeah. They'll have the spaghetti that has, like, the carrots and the kale taken out of it. It's like, at our house, if our kids don't like something, they go to bed hungry. But there's never been that idea that there's a adult food and then there's child food, right? So if we have sardines or liver or, you know, some kind of avocado dish or something that a child might normally uh, be expected in our, in our modern day and age – to not like because it's not colorful, doesn't have a cartoon character, doesn't have artificial yeah. sweeteners that make it bright blue and orange, etc. Mm. You know, in, in our house, 
the kids just eat with the adults eat. It's just always been been a given. There has never been another option, a kid option. And I think that's really important is that your kids not grow up conditioned that there's like special foods that kids eat and then special foods that adults eat. Yeah, and it's like because they know no difference, they're never going to question it really, are they? Um, I don't question occasionally, you know, but that's the other oh. important thing is that, you know, I give my kids the option, right? So if they go to a birthday party and they have chocolate cake there, right? Like mm. modern wheat-filled, you know, chocolate cake with high fructose corn syrup and gluten and everything. I don't tell my kids don't eat the cake. I tell mm. them what gluten does to their bodies. I tell them what sugar does to their bodies, and then I give them the choice. Nine times out of ten, they don't eat the cake. They know that what they can do if they don't eat the cake is they can later on with me, I'll take them out for coconut ice cream or give them a nice, you know, 90% dark chocolate bar or, you know, something like that. But ultimately, I never, ever tell them, don't eat this. All I do is just educate them, let them know what happens to their body, whether it's, you know, whatever, alcohol or caffeine or gluten or sugar or whatever, and then let them make the choice. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's like giving them the correct direction so they can make the better choices in life in the future. You got it. You got it, guys. So, Ben, human aging is a topic that terrifies a certain number of people, uh, which made us ask the question, is it possible to slow down human aging? Well, that, that all comes down to your telomere length, right? You can decrease the rate at which telomeres shorten, and telomeres in your cells are responsible for coding DNA. And so if you decrease the rate at which they shorten, then you're going to allow yourself to produce DNA and, you know, genetic materials for a longer period of time. Um, you know, as far as, like, things that can help to do that, it, it looks like the, the best thing that you can do is just don't expose yourself to a lot of inflammation, don't expose yourself to a lot of oxidation, you know, so highly inflammatory foods, um, processed vegetable oils, a lot of the things that most people know, right, like mm -hmm. decrease inflammation, decrease oxidation. Um, there are some supplements that appear to potentially decrease the rate at which telomeres shorten. Um, astragalus is the one that there's been the most research on as being like a, an herb that can help out quite a bit. That's one that I take almost every day just because of its, its, uh, its potential for decreasing the, the rate at which telomeres shorten and increasing longevity. The other thing would be to really be careful with overall calorie intake and especially overall protein intake. Anytime that you're constantly in a pro-growth anabolic state, which would be like having protein with every meal and always being in a like build muscle type of situation and never having a period of time in your life, whether it's weekly or monthly or yearly, where you're going without food, right? Like fasting, allowing your body to clean up metabolic damage, et cetera. Um, it's looking like that may be one of the biggest triggers, especially for dying of cancer, would just be constant, constant growth, constant uh, abundance. So, you know, more protein is not better. I'm a big fan of about 20 to 30 percent of your total daily uh, calorie intake coming from protein. I'm a big fan of having long periods of time that you go without eating, whether it's a daily fast of 12 to 16 hours or, you know, weekend fast, Saturday lunchtime to Sunday at lunchtime or even, you know, at the beginning of each year, a week-long water fast. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing that. Uh, but that combined with shutting down inflammation, shutting down oxidation, and then uh, you know, using herbs like astragalus, for example, to, uh, to help give the body some support in that way. So, Ben, this is a quite a big question, actually, but where would you like to see the human race go in terms of health? And I was wondering what like, type of lineage you want to leave behind the people? Yeah, I think that the next big thing that 
we're going to see is customized, personalized solutions to health issues based on testing, right? So let's just say that you, you could, with uh, a drop of blood and a tube of saliva and a little bit of urine or poo, sequence your microbiome, get your genetics tested, find out everything that's going on in terms of nutrients deficiencies or excesses in your blood and then find out your hormone balance. And then based on that, choose a diet, choose a supplement regimen, and choose a movement regimen that is appropriate not just for your body type, your muscle fiber composition, your genetics, uh, but also uh, your specific deficiencies or excesses that have resulted as a part of, of your, your epigenetics, your environment. And when you are able to customize, you know, and I do a lot of this, I test my blood four times a year, test my gut twice a year, I've done extensive genetic testing, everything that I do, you know, from the type of exercise that I choose, because I'm a power responder with a lot of fast switch, so I tend to choose workouts more focused on that, because I know they give me more bang for my buck. I know that I am a fast recoverer, but I produce a low amount of endogenous antioxidants. So that means I can work out every day and bounce back pretty quickly, but I need to take antioxidants to help me do so. I know that I tend towards higher amounts of blood glucose, and so I choose a lower carbohydrate diet. You know, there's, there's a lot of little things you can find out once you begin testing and quantifying, but it's not cheap yet. I think that it's going to become more affordable. And when it does personalize and customize medicine, health, exercise, diet, all that is going to be far more prevalent in the future. And as far as my own legacy and my own lineage, I mean, all, all I want to do is raise up two little boys who are going to be able to change the face of the world, whether it be to, to cure cancer or to, to feed and clothe the homeless or, you know, to, to you know, I don't know invent a rocket ship that goes to Mars, whatever. So I want to do a really good job with my own kids, and I also want to help as many people as possible tap into as much health as they can, to be able to live life inside of a body and with a brain that's working the way that the human body and brain are supposed to work. I think it's sad that a lot of people don't get to experience that day in and day out. And when I wake up in the morning and I'm pouring through 40 to 60, see different research articles and journals and blog posts and podcasts. Are all I'm trying to do is discover and then pass on to people how they can achieve an optimized human body and brain. So that's, that's what I go for every day. Well, I'm, I'm certainly sure you will achieve that, Ben. And so on that note, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Uh, BenGreenfieldFitness.com is my blog. And um, what am I currently working on? Uh, just working on a few songs for the next open mic night uh, on my guitar is what I'm currently working on. So um, I'm all about the little things in life. I don't have any huge, huge, massive projects. I just basically try and help people out with a blog post here, a podcast there. And, uh, yeah, you can find all that at BenGreenfieldFitness.com. Ben, thank you so much for being an incredible guest. We knew from the first moment that you were going to be on, it was going to be a great podcast. And we'd just like to say thank you again. You've been an awesome guest. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Have a great day, Ben. All right. You thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes as it really helps the show. And don't forget to head over to the show notes at beastified.com Hey everyone, and check out our weekly challenge set by the guests themselves. And also don't forget to check out the bonus questions we ask the guests after the show. In the meantime, stay healthy.